believe that leadership isn't a position or a role, it's an action and a choice. I believe that leadership can be learned. I believe that great leaders emerge from adversity. I believe that Happy Valley is full of great leaders. These are their stories. Welcome to the Penn State Leaders Podcast. Today, I've got with me John Ho, the Senior IT Director for the Commonwealth Campuses at Penn State. John is also the Campus Technology Officer for the Harrisburg Campus. So welcome, John Ho. We're glad to have you. Well, thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. So John, I named two roles. Can you tell us a little bit about what those roles are, so what you do here at Penn State and how you came to Penn State? All right, I'll start out what, what I do here, and then I'll, I'll, I'll kind of backtrack and explain how I got here. Um, I originally uh, came and I accepted the position here at Harrisburg, and I was the campus, I, you know, I was the IT director, and then eventually morphed into a, a larger role of, um, as you mentioned, about the campus technology officer, and they, they gave me additional duties, mainly dealing with the classrooms, uh, making sure the classrooms were up to snuff and the planning of that and, and things of that nature. So I was doing that for a while, and then um, we actually had someone in Dr. Haynes's office, that's the vice president for the Commonwealth campuses, the person who was doing the senior IT position there had left to take another position and they asked me to fill in for a little while and they said it'd probably be six or seven months or something like that. Well, six or seven months turned into 22 months and eventually decided interim was probably no longer the correct term and I was officially made uh, the senior IT director for the Commonwealth campuses. And I've enjoyed it. Uh, it's, it's a great gig. I enjoy dealing with all the other campuses and meeting other people and seeing the different environments. So it was a good fit. Great. Now, how did I get here? That's a little bit more of a convoluted story. <laughs> uh, when I first got out of college, I was actually a high school teacher and a coach. And I did that for a number of years. Uh, then I went back to graduate school, got some other degrees. Uh, and my family and I moved down to Lancaster County uh, 28 years ago to accept the position at a, uh, at a college in Lancaster. I was there for 13 and a half years. And unfortunately I got caught in a downsizing where they removed the whole layer of management. And I was one of those layers of management that was removed. Uh, so I was out of work for five and a half months, which wasn't fun. Uh, and then I landed a position at a uh, public uh, Pennsylvania public uh, school district where, where I called the soft landing. It was a place just to basically earn enough money to put bread on the table. And I started looking again and uh, it was a article, uh, you know, an advertisement in the paper for Penn State Harrisburg. And I applied for it. And uh, I was interviewed by both Dr. Kulkarni and Dr. Haynes, uh, two wonderful people who I look up to very much then and now. Um, both those folks taught me a lot about uh, being a better person and uh, being a better leader. So uh, in these 13 years that I've been with Penn State has been uh, lots of challenges, lots of opportunities. And I think I'm a, be I'm a better human being because of it. So you worked for Dr. Haynes then when she was the chancellor at Harrisburg. Correct, and she correct. then moved to the role at University Park as the vice president for Commonwealth campuses. And now you work for her again. Exactly. And she's just literally retiring in any day and Kelly Austin would be taking over her spot for okay. interview. So how many years total then have you worked for Dr. Haynes? 13 years now, it was okay. in July, it was th this, this month was 13 years. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I hope to get her on the podcast before she retires or, or maybe I catch her on her way out the door. 
Yes, well, she be she could do a podcast while driving a car, so I don't think any problem. <laughs> so, John, as you think back on your leadership journey, is there any person or people that have influenced you to be the leader that you are today? Yeah, uh, as I had mentioned earlier, um, uh, Mukund and Madeline were very influential to me as Penn Staters. Uh, Dr. Haynes emphasized uh, relationship building, and, and that's one of the reasons she was so successful at the university is that she had ties to just about everybody. So I, I learned from her the, the importance of uh, relationship building and maintaining those relationships. Well, Dr. Kalkani, he, was, uh, he had slightly different views on the world, and he emphasized the power of a story and also uh, how important it is to be uh, empathetic when you're making your decisions. So he was a, a more of a soft touch person. And, and uh, when we would meet, he, he liked to talk more about me, my family and things like that. And eventually we get down to business, but he really wanted to know how I was doing. And he would help me with leadership decisions uh, that way through storytelling often, which mm-hmm. I, I've tried to emulate over the years. I've also had, you know, over my journeys I've had many good leaders, many good teachers, uh, plenty of good coaches. But then again, I've also had some absolute twits that were bad leaders uh, who you know, had very little, they had no reason being leaders. And what I learned from them is how not to do something. So, and I try to balance that in my head. And, I, and sometimes I think, of, what would so-and-so do in this situation? Then I make sure I do the exact opposite. <laughs> uh, so you learn from people that you really respect and you learn from people who you know, you're not so sure about. Uh, but I, th- I think with any person, I think your leadership journey really begins when you're a kid and what you learn from your parents and, and what kind of in- influences you got from them. One of the things I'm most proud of is both my parents are, are immigrants to this great country. And you know they had their own t- stories of challenges and things like that. And my father's, I think, was a, a particularly good story. Uh, he uh, immigrated over here. He crossed the Atlantic uh, back around 1925. He was in his uh, early teens. Uh, he immigrated over here, landed in New York City, and his, his father went to work the next day. He had a job in a uh, automobile plant that made panel trucks. He was a carpenter, and they would make the sides of the trucks. Uh, so that started, you know, the, the presence of my family in this country, and they worked their way up. Uh, and I myself are very aware of the sacrifices they, they did for me, and I've made sure my children know about that, and I'm hopeful that my later generations of my family will understand what, 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 what they did for us. So that, that's, a, that's a, big, uh, a big influence for me. And the other thing, my father never really had a formal education. He was educated up to, grade, uh, up to eighth grade in um, Germany. And then uh, basically when he got here, uh, he started working. So he really didn't have a heck of a lot of a childhood. And in those days, it was very common, the way you moved up the ladder is that you did it through the trades. So he worked his up his way up through the union ranks and eventually became the president of, of his local. Um, he, his specialty was he had an absolute commitment to trade unionism. And he was also, uh, he had an ability to negotiate, arbitrate and facilitate because that was part of his job. And, and often in very hostile environments, you know, negotiating and things like that. And quite frankly, I believe my mission to enable teaching, learning, uh, research in a higher education environment is actually quite similar. You know, there's a, there's a lot of similarities in there. Well, a lot of what I do is what my father did 50 years ago, just in a different way. So I attribute a lot from watching him, um, you know, how he handled himself, how he kept his calm and very, you know, sometimes in awful situations and he very seldom uh, lost his cool. So I, I, I try to emulate that in my own decision-making processes. 
that's great. I, I love the, a few things. One is how you have taken, learned from lots of different people, both what to do and not to do, right? So I think it's one thing I, I learned early on from leaders is pay attention to the leaders around you and how they lead and think about what you would do and to your point, not do. Yes. Um, that can be just as instructive, right? What doesn't work. Um, and, and then I love the, the story of your, your parents and and you keeping that memory alive and wanting to keep that down through generations that, you know, I, uh, I had a grandfather that came over um, from, from Germany, uh, two grandmothers come, came over from Ireland. And I actually only got to know one of them because they had um, three of the, my four grandparents had died before I was born. Um, but keeping that, that knowledge of that story alive through generations is so important. I've, I've started a project recently with uh, my mother in having her look at photo albums and recording her talking about, you know, her life from the pictures that she has when she's, she's young. And so some way to preserve that. So uh, I, I love that you're, you're doing that very intentionally with, uh, with your kids. I do have one, uh, one, fun, well, not really funny story, but something corollary to that is my, my father also served in the, uh, in the army during World War II and he served in the third armored division and spent a year and a half in a tank in uh, Western, uh, Western Europe. And he had a very, you know, you talk about mission statements and things like that. He had a very simple one. You know, my mission is to return home alive and in one piece. People can understand that, you know, that's, and I try to get that across to my people here that our job is to enable, you know, learning, research and service. That's our job. It's, it's pretty simple, you know, defining it. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So John, you know, one of the things that I say in the introduction is I think adversity really affects who we are as leaders. Um, can you think of time of adversity in your life and how that impacted you as a leader? Yeah. I'll, I'll choose one from relatively recent history. It was when I uh, started here at Harrisburg. And uh, let's just put it this way. There were plenty of opportunities here for positive change, for improvement. Uh, so I, I somewhat inherited a sinking ship um, so we made a, one of the things we did is we made a commitment on day one, that, that was a July 8th, that we had a commitment to improve the classroom experience for both the faculty and the students. And we put everything we had into making sure the classrooms were up and running and functional, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in a brief amount of time, i.e. before classes start at the end of August, we had basically got everything up to an acceptable level. And uh, there was nothing that was really an eyesore anymore. Uh, we were quite, quite pleased with our progress. And what we did is we kind of went on a little uh, dog and pony show. We went around to all the different schools to study here at Harrisburg to kind of tout our successes and thanking everybody for their patience and blah, 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 blah. And we were at our largest school, which I will leave unnamed, but it starts with an E, uh, that uh, I was there and I gave my spiel and I said, look how the service level has improved. Look how endpoint management improved. Look how the classrooms are better. And they all went, mm-hmm. And they didn't really care one bit about it. And they started giving me grief about why they have to fill out a form to get administrative rights on their laptop. And I got to admit, I was a little bit miffed by this because I thought, you know, we had really done some great changes at the, at the campus here and we made it better for the faculty and the students. And I thought that was all it was about, but evidently I was wrong on that one. So I went into Dr. Kilcarney kind of like, Oh, I can't believe what happened. And I went through this whole story and he just looked at me very politely, smiled, nodded his head. And he goes, why are you worrying about this? And I'm like, what do you mean? Why am I worrying about this? This guy basically, you know, insulted me and blah, blah. And he went, and he just went like this. He said, let it go, let it go. 
Mm. And it was such a simple response. And I went, you know, you're right. And then I started thinking about it. And then I was in ITLP and I learned about this whole thing about what's important and what's the immediate problem, you know, concentrate on the important things and the hell with the immediate problems, you'll, you'll, you'll deal with them if you have to. And, and I, I really took heart with that from then on that, you know what, I can't let these little things bother me. I'm gonna to try to be like Dr. Fukani and just let it flow and not let it, uh, you know, stop my progress in doing the bigger things. Um, I'll give you a good example of this is, I believe printing is an absolute evil thing and it has, it's an absolute waste of our resources. But I'm not gonna drain all my political capital on trying to resolve that problem. It, it's just not worth me, you know, my time and my effort to go after this topic. If people wanna waste money on printing and they wanna have a color printer in their office, so be it. I'll explain to them that I don't think it's a good idea, but they can do what they want. So it's, I've learned that over the years. And I think that also comes with, with age, you get a little bit better with dealing with situations like this and also being a parent that you, you, you're you in situations, you know, I've been married nearly 40 years. You know, there's, there's a certain amount of miracles that have happened during all this. Uh, so I think this is all adds up to leadership that you, you learn from your mistakes, you learn from other people's mistakes, you learn from seeing good leaders and what they do. And it's a continual, uh, you know, process, I think about becoming a good leader, becoming a good parent, becoming a good spouse. It's all those kind of in the same category. I like that. I think it's interesting, you know, you need the wisdom of having gone through enough things and having mentors around you to know what you should worry about. What are those little signals to pick up on? And what are the ones to, to your point, you just, you let go right over, right? Let it go. Let it go. Uh, and, and it's helpful to have an executive kind of sponsor for you to let you know what's important and what's not, because you can't, you can't deal, you, you'll run yourself ragged trying to make make everyone happy about every little thing, right? I, I, I can still remember many instances where Madeline Haynes just looked at me and said, who cares? And you go, well, I guess you're right. You know? <laughs> you're right, <laughs> who does care? <laughs> I care, but evidently no one else. <laughs> yeah, and it's something that we can do as leaders, right? Is help people understand what's important, help them see the big picture. So they're not off chasing things that, that aren't gonna matter in, in the long run. Yep, yeah, completely agree. Great. Um, so John, anything, you know, how, how do you learn about leadership? Do you have books that you read, authors, podcasts, or activities that you do that try to improve your leadership? Well, you know, I'm not a huge fan of reading books on management because I think it's, I'm more of an observing type of person. I like to, you know, that's what I like to keep an eye on people. I have to keep my eyes open and my mouth shut is one of the ways I'd like to learn. <laughs> uh, I've, I've read some interesting books over the years and the, and the, a lot of it, I think, is psycho babble, but uh, you do find a gem or two in each of these books. Mm -hmm. uh, I may not believe the whole thing, but I'll grab a, a, a fact or two out of it. And one of the ones I, I liked, uh, what was the guy's name? James Collins, uh, Good to Great. Right. Yes. And I Good. thought he had some really interesting, uh, you know, notes in there about leadership. And um, what, I got a quote for the, uh, we should all take our skills to the job where they make the most impact. And I think that's a very powerful statement. That's the reason why I'm an educator and not an accountant. Because I think I can help people and, uh, and I can help faculty members, I can help students. And I think to me, that's very important. And to me, that's making an impact. And that's what I tell my children that you've got to get, you've got to aspire to a level where you're not just helping 50 people or 100 people, you're helping 
10,000 people or 100,000 people or whatever the case may be. So migrate to those positions where you can help the most and have the most amount of impact. And the corollary of that is never work for someone you don't respect. And I could use another word, but I want to keep this clean here. So, you know, you're, who's your boss is an important concept, you know, and if, if you don't like your boss, you don't respect your boss, it's not a good situation. So, uh, but there is one thing, and I'm not a big, you know, social media, you know, I have a Facebook page just so people can find me if they want to find me, which doesn't happen very often. Uh, so I'm not into, you know, Instagram and blah, 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 blah. But I am into a, a recent streaming sensation. And I don't know if you've heard about this. There's a TV show, uh, I'll call it not TV show, not even the right word, a streaming show from Apple Plus. It's called Ted Lasso. Have you ever heard of it? I have had lots of coworkers tell me I need to watch it. Yes, you should. It's actually, uh, you learn a lot about management and, and to make a very long story short, it's about a, an American football coach, our football, right. uh, who moves over to England to become a, uh, a, a soccer coach. And uh, it's just this whole story about how, how he manages this trans transition. Well, I'm a big fan of it, and so is Jennifer Sparrow. And right. hopefully, Jennifer Sparrow and I will be giving a talk at Educause about the uh, magnificent seven management uh, techniques of Ted Lasso. And because he really does have some gems, and and they're very simple. They're under they are they are very easy to understand. One of the ones I really love about his is uh, release yourself from your ego and trust your people. I, I think that's good. You know, get over yourself. Yeah and listen to the people who are smarter than you. That's how you're gonna make good decisions when you do that, when you can be humble enough to know that I'm not the smartest dude on the planet and maybe this guy or gal over here knows more about this than me. And you know, I'm not gonna tell a bricklayer how to, how to build a, you know, the foundation of my house. And the same thing with that work. I wanna trust the people and I'm gonna to listen to them and I'm gonna to listen to them properly. Uh, another thing that I, I learned from that show is New talent plus experience equals success. Mm -hmm. So have some guys like me who've been around the block a few hundred times, but bring in some talent, some younger talent who may have some skills that you don't have that can supplement your team and make it a better team. And that's why I love the Harrisburg team here because we have a combination of that. We've got seasoned veterans and we've got some younger folks who, who know what they're talking about and they understand that we're here to enable learning. So that that's to me, that's a big part of success. And... Um, Another thing is he's big on kindness, humility, empathy, and a sense of humor as leadership tools. And that's vital. I mean, you've got to be able to go into a meeting and have at least a decent time. I mean, you don't have to, you know, have wild laughter all the time, but it's nice to have a chuckle or two with your colleagues. And, you know, we're in higher ed. This, this whole management of higher ed is kind of absurd in its own way. So I really enjoy people who have a sense of humor. And I often will put that in a job description and, almost always HR crosses it off. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently they don't have the sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely true. So you know, I, 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 the things that used to upset me when I was a younger man don't bother me at all anymore because as Dr. Kulkarni said, just let it flow. Yeah. You know, I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to do my job and I'm going to do the best I can to make Penn State, continue to make Penn State a greater place as it is now. Pretty simple. That's great. Well, you've inspired me. So Jennifer Sparrow has been telling me I need to watch that show. Yes. 
And now I guess I do, right? I didn't realize how many leadership lessons there are there. Well, I tell you what, if you come to EduCause this year and we're selected, you can come by and watch our presentation or poster session or whatever we got on it. I, I'm willing to bet not only will it be a presentation, but it'll be one of the more popular ones. Yeah. Well, Jennifer's a rock star, so she, she will attract the, that's why I had her name first. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, the other thing is people shop by title when they go to conference, right? So if you have a, something like Ted Lasso in your title, uh, people say, oh, that, that, that'll be different. Like, I want to see that. So, And, and I think things like that, uh, you know, boiling it down to humility, empathy, and things that are very, very important, these challenging times we're in right now. You know, we've had layoffs, we've had budget cuts, people are looking over their shoulder way too much. And, and I think what's sometimes hard for people to understand, this is not about centralization or taking things away from people. This is about aligning people. This is about getting all of our, our best people going in the same direction, doing the same thing for the common good. And, and, and that's what, I'm, what I, I like to pontificate about is that we're not, we're not land grabbing here. We're, we don't want your budget. We want alignment. We want a common classroom experience. It's as simple as that. We don't want your jobs. We don't want your money. We want a good experience for our students and an experience for our faculty. So our faculty members are enthusiastic as us. Um, and again, it's all about teaching, learning, research, service. That's what we're here for. We're not here for bits and bytes and file servers and, and VoIP phones. That, that's part of the game, but it's not why we're here. We're here for that experience to make, you know, make Penn State that great R1 institution that it is. Great. Well, that sounds like a great way to end it. So, John Ho, thank you for your time today. Thank you for uh, sharing your leadership journey. And thank you for your service to Penn State. It's been, it's been both a, uh, a challenge and an absolute pleasure. <laughs> so, John, one of the things that you mentioned in uh, your answers earlier was humility mm -hmm. as a leader. And, and that's something that really resonates with me. One of the one of the things, podcasts I like to listen to is Jocko Willink. He's a former Navy SEAL. And that's actually his number, what he thinks is the number one characteristic that a leader needs to have is humility. Can you talk a little bit more about that of, you know, what, what difference humility makes or maybe what difference the lack of humility makes in, in leadership? Well, you know, it's, it's I, th I think part of being a good leader is just being able to accept the fact that you're, you're not, you don't have to be the content expert on everything that you can defer judgment as far down the chain as you need to, to go down there. If you've got to go down to an IT support specialist to get the, the correct answer, you do that. You just don't, just because I'm the boss, I should know all the answers. Well, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, someone three levels down the organization is going to know the answer better than I, and, and I should be able to go down there and ask those questions. And I expect that person to tell me the truth and not tell them, tell me what I want to know, but tell me the truth. And uh, so I think that that's incredibly important. And part of that is getting the trust of your people. You know, you just can't walk into an organization and say, trust me, I had a leader who did that one time and I almost laughed in his face. It was awful. Tell your people to trust me. Oh, come. That's absurd when you think about it. Right. Yeah, that's not how humans work. Yeah, right. yeah you got to prove you're, you know, you, you, you know, you're trustworthy. You got to show it. And I think that's one of the way I, I gain a uh, solid footing here at Harrisburg is I told the faculty the day I got here, I'm gonna fix the classrooms. Even though there are a hundred other things we could have done that were just as important. 
But the fact that I made the classrooms the, the number one emphasis earned me a pile of political capital. And no, everyone remembers that. Oh, first thing John did was fix the classrooms. That was 13 years ago. And I'm still living off that residual. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it reminds me, I think it is in Good to Great, where they talk about this idea of the hedgehog concept. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. what's the one thing and focus on that one thing and get that better. And clearly for you, that was the classrooms, right? You figured out very, very quickly that if I can make progress on this one thing, every it'll drag everything else along with it. And you know what some of it was? Dusting the monitors. Yeah, no one no one cleaned the, the podiums. It, uh, the custodians wouldn't touch it. The IT people wouldn't lower themselves to do it. So I did it. <laughs> I love it. And, and a lot of people, when they saw me doing it, they said, well, this isn't so bad, you know? Yeah. You know, you, I love that about, I love that story because it talks about the humility that you're talking about as a leader, right? I'm not above you know, dusting classrooms. If this is important, I'll do it just as well as anyone else. Yeah, um, I one of the first jobs, I, the summer between my senior year in college and when I started teaching, I had a few months off there and I got a job as a, a union laborer in, in West Philadelphia. And one time they, they asked, uh, well, we need someone to go into so-and-so laboratory. We need someone to clean the beakers off or something like that. And I looked around and all the other guys went, oh, I'm not doing that. I'm like, I'm there because I'm in an air conditioned room <laughs> going like this, cleaning these, you know, uh, Erlenmeyer flasks. And these guys are out digging ditches in 97 degree heat. And I'm yeah. like, okay, man, you want to play macho, go ahead. But <laughs> I'm going to clean these flasks and they're going to be, they're going to be shiny when I'm done. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's another example that I always saw in the military was if you had any kind of event where you were, where there was food being served, the leaders serve the food, right? Yes. Right. Yes. That act of you're more important. You're going to eat first, and I'm going to serve you. Right. It's it's not just humility and saying humility matters. It's demonstrating in ways that people see it and really then ingrains it in them. And that's what Dr. Kulkarni did. We'd have these during the finals week. We would have uh, like ice cream in the lobby, and he would serve the ice cream to the to the faculty and the and the students. And he enjoyed it. And he would carry on conversations with the students, ask right. them what they're doing, where they're from. It was, it was great. Another another learning opportunity for me. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Um, you know, you talked a lot about humor, and and you know, obviously, I, I worked with you enough to experience that humor. But uh, you know, it it breaks down walls with people. I think it does build trust, right? It brings out some personality in folks. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about kind of humor and why you think that's so valuable? Well, it, it, this is, this is, I learned this, well, I, I was fairly good at it all for many years, but there's something else I learned from Dr. Haynes. I got, I, I watched her get President Barron, like almost belly laugh, you know, <laughs> like, and when you see someone like that laugh, you'll be, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. But, you know, sometimes it, it lightens the environment up. I mean, you can be talking about very heady stuff. I'll give you another example of this. When the pandemic first started, there was some chancellor from one of the Western campuses complaining about the fact that the grass was growing too high and, and the flower beds weren't getting mulched. And oh my God, the world's coming to an end. And Madeline just looked at him and went, who's going to see it? <laughs> and the whole, the whole room just cracked up, you know, like, and when you think about it, that's exactly, that was the perfect thing to do. It broke the, the tenseness of the situation. Everyone got a chuckle. Then we got back down to business and, and stopped talking about mulch. 
you know, <laughs> trying to figure out how we're going to do remote learning in one week, you know? You're right. Right. That's great. So, so I'll ask you a question and you'll know why I asked this question is for someone who's not naturally humorous, uh, what would you recommend? To... <laughs> is there a book you can read? Is that... <laughs> or, or should they just emulate you? I mean, for someone who humor doesn't come as naturally to them. Oh boy, that's a good one. Well, you can have a very dry sense of humor. You know, you can be a kind of a sarcastic, you know, angle on that, which can be, which can actually be very good or very horrible depending <laughs> on how you present it. <laughs> so there's nothing worse, you know, than telling a bad joke or bad sarcasm or something like that. Uh, as any stand-up com comic will tell you, you know, when you fail, you fail big. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I think you know simple things like smiling and looking somebody in the eyes and uh, you know keeping your hands in, in front of you and not like this you know mm -hmm. little things like that loosen people up without without jokes or as i remember when i was a school teacher something you would do to a student just to relax them is you should just touch them on the shoulder nothing perverted you know but just a a little touch on the shoulder yeah. you, you got this you understand what we're doing here you know three x equals four bring the three over you got that give them a little touch on the shoulder and you know that you're making that connection with other person yeah not really you know i'm not giving them a bear hug or a high five it's just a simple act and i learned that uh when i was getting my doctorate from uh, i had one teacher who was an elementary school teacher and then he became an elementary school principal and he had all these little vignettes like that of how to you know build those relationships in the classroom uh just a little subtle things you can do to get people and like i do here from my office i bring vegetables in you know, what could be more, you know, they're going to serve this to their family and, and they're going to say, oh, these string greens came from Dr. Ho's garden or that squash came from Dr. Ho's garden. Isn't that nice of him? You know, and we all get to share this. So it's just another little way. Of, again, it's being humble. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't mind toiling the soil. So, uh, you know, we can eat we can eat food that isn't full of whatever chemicals. <laughs> That's great. No, I, I love that. Um, you know, I guess when in doubt, you can always make fun of yourself, right? People yeah. Oh, yeah. take themselves too seriously. Are, that's, that's the angle uh, you should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because if I'm in a meeting with you, you'll make fun of me. But if I if I if you're not there, then I might as well, you know, pick up the slack and just. I only make fun of you when it's a good opportunity. I don't I don't waste my ammunition. <laughs> well, I usually give you a few opportunities every meeting. By the way, did I ever tell you this? My father only discharged his weapon twice during the whole war. Oh, no, I didn't hear that. Yeah, he only shot it twice. Once he opened, he used his Tommy gun and he shot a cow by mistake because he didn't know what it was. It was at night and they were in the woods and he just, he heard something coming through the bushes and he didn't know what it was. So he, it was a cow. And the second time uh, was on purpose. It was a chicken sitting on a fence and he pulled out his, you know, hand good sidearm and took a shot at and didn't kill it. It just knocked its one leg off, and it stood there on the on the uh, rail with one leg. And one of his uh, one of his teammates went over and grabbed the chicken around the throat, and and they ate it. <laughs> well, I'm sure I'm sure he was glad that there were the only two opportunities he had. Oh well, as he put it, there were plenty of people who wanted to pull the trigger. I just wasn't one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like it was like, did you see uh, Saving Private Ryan that movie? Oh, sure. Remember the scene of what to do with the prisoners? Yeah. And that was one thing my father lamented about the prisoner thing. He goes, I, I would just turn, turn, turn my back and walk away. 
because mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I couldn't tell these guys what to do because there was no answer. And I let them deal with it. And he just made it clear that he wasn't going to do it. And now, your, your father spoke German, right? Yeah, he could read, as he said, I could read the street signs. Right. <laughs> and although I, probably one quarter of the guys in his group were German with descent and the other quarter were probably Italian. Right. So, I mean, it was, it was a very interesting state. I mean, I feel bad about these guys in Afghanistan that, you know, they can't even read, they can't read a street sign. They can't, they right. can't identify what that sign says. You know, they have no idea. So it's, it was a different world, you know, a different war. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Crazy shit. Hmm. Glad I never had to do it. <laughs> I'm not good with moral dilemmas like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and at the age that the, those those young people were making those decisions. I, it's interesting. I was, I was reading through some um, history of Penn State in the Olympics. There was an article they put out recently. And, and you know, there was a certain period of years there where so many of these Olympians had gone out and served for years, then went to college and played a sport and then went to the Olympics. And so they were 25, 26 years old, you know, in college uh, and then competing in the Olympics. And it's, it's something that I think young people today can't even fathom of, of going off and fighting a war and then coming back. I mean, not that we don't have veterans, but uh, it was a whole generation that, that went and did that. Well, in my father's case, he had a, a young daughter at home. So he left his daughter and uh, went off. And uh, although there was some advantages of being older, he was, uh, he was 32 when he got drafted. He was 33 when he was in boot camp. Wow. And uh, he was given a rank after being in the army of about a half an hour. They made him a corporal. And the, he was older than a drill sergeant. And the drill sergeant just said to him, look, we've got six weeks to try to minimize the number of guys that die. Can you help me out with that? And he said, sure, I'll do my best. Wow. And that was another one of those, you know, I say simple mission statements. Like our job is to try to minimize the number of those kids standing out in that room to die. Yeah. Some of them are going to die X amount of percent. We know that. Right. Love the humility of that drill sergeant, right? Here's someone he's supposed to train, but he says, I need your help. You have a skill that I don't have, you know, wisdom. I I need your help. That's great. Well, John, it's been a pleasure. I I really look forward to this. There's a lot of things I've, you know, I I try to install in my children. And uh, so they understand that. And I think my kids guys, particularly my son, I've given him a lot of my father's stuff, you know, his draft cards and things like that. Yeah. The little goofy medals they give you during a war, you know, good marksman or whatever it was. <laughs> you know, and, uh, I try to get him to understand it and he, he gets it. And that, uh, you know, he's, he's where he is now, not because of me, it's because of my father and his father. Right. You know, the success is, I think in a family is two generations back, how much your grandparents mm-hmm. did. Because uh, you can have crappy, <laughs> crappy parents, but you get good grandparents, you, you get a good chance you're going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if that's a modern thing or an American thing, but that we just don't seem to have that connection back as many generations. At least it seems less common to me that we really understand what we've gotten comes from previous generations. Well, I, I think part of the problem was until very recently, most Americans had only been here two generations. Well, that's very true, too. Yeah, yeah. particularly, you know, if you lived in a big city like what I did in New York, that almost, uh, you know, my father's youth, everyone was an immigrant. There were very few people that, right. you know, were born, were, you know, 10th generation Americans. You know, they were the yeah. blue bloods. They, you didn't talk to them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you, didn't hang out, you didn't hang out at the pub with, uh, you know, 
<laughs> the the uh, Presbyterian minister or anything like that. Right. Yeah. You you maybe worked at the uh, at the factory that fo- those folks owned, or you uh, chauffeured them to the Jersey Shore or something. But uh, yeah. Well, yeah, my grandfather also, uh, like I said, he was a carpenter in the, uh, in the automobile plant, and these three fingers were were uh, flat out or cut like that. He got caught in an electric planer. Mm. These three fingers were exactly the same height. It was pretty oh. bizarre. Mm. And I'm nope. sure they didn't have workman's comp in those days. They probably taped them up and sent them back to the line. <laughs> yeah, right. What was the story that you told about? Was it your grandfather that was the barrel maker? Yeah, he went from barrels. He made the beer barrels. Then he went into what was called the transportation part of the brewery, which was the, uh, you know, they had flatbed and he made the wheels. Right, right, right. And then when they immigrated here, he got the job uh, in the automobile factory making the panel trucks. And then when they moved out to the suburbs, uh, he eventually got a job at a garage door maker. And it was like the American dream. You know, they were building garages left and right. And he was one of those guys putting the, door, the, the doors on them. <laughs> right. And how he changed, you know, he had the same skills, but he adapted them each step of the way. You know, I try to use that, you know, you're a sysadmin, but what you do as a sysadmin is going to change. Right. And he, he always considered himself a carpenter. And, uh, you know, to the day he died, he was a carpenter. Mm-hmm. Just a different form of it. Yeah. That's great. Fascinating stuff. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. Yeah, I wouldn't go as far as wisdom, but maybe <laughs> <laughs> what I've lived through. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got a few years on some of us. So, you know, you, you've learned a little in those years. Yeah, I have. I have. And uh, quite frankly, and, and I, without kidding around that Penn State is the best thing that ever happened to me. So I, I'm incredibly uh, thankful for uh, Bakund and to Bakund and to Dr. Haynes for just giving me the opportunity. Yeah. And, uh, well, you've done happy. well with it. You've yeah. had a great impact. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Happy Valley Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Give us a review and share us with others. You can follow us on Twitter at HV Leader Podcast and on YouTube at Happy Valley Leaders Podcast. Remember, leadership is an action and a choice. So go be a leader.